0: let bow your heads with me as we go to the Lord one more time to ask His blessing on the public preaching of God's Word. Let's pray together. Father, you tell us in Scripture that man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from your mouth. You have said that the grass withers and the flower fades The word of the Lord remains forever. Surely the peoples are grass, the grass withers, the flower fades. We fade, we wither, yet your word remains from age to age, from generation to generation. So we pray that you would speak your word to us this morning as your servants are listening And that you would make good on your promise to watch over your word and to perform it. For Jesus' sake, amen. My seven year old boy never met my father in law. My father in law was a really good man. But there's a framed picture of my father-in-law on the nightstand by my boy's bed. And sometimes when he goes to bed, he hugs that picture, gets a little choked up, wishing that he could have known Papa. And even though he never met him, he seems to miss him. And he looks forward to seeing him in heaven. That picture is all my boy has ever had of Papa. It's a poor substitute, but it's going to have to do for now. Jesus, though, left us with something far better than a picture when he rose from the dead and ascended to glory from this world into heaven. He gave us his spirit, which means that Jesus is with us even when he's not. He is with us by His Spirit, though not in body. But His presence with us is not merely sentimental. It's functional. It works. His Spirit is present with us for our obedience to Him, for our communion with Him, and for our peace when we are persecuted on account of Him. And those three points will structure our time in God's Word together this morning. If you'll turn with me to John 14, John 14, chapter, verses 15 to, tw- to 31, John 14, 15 to 31, follow along in your Bible as I read for us out loud, John 14, verses 15 to 31, if you love me, you will keep my commandments and I will ask the Father and he will give you another helper to be with you forever Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. Judas, not Iscariot, said to him, Lord, how is it that you will manifest yourself to us and not to the world? Jesus answered him, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word. I will no longer talk much with you, for the ruler of this world is coming. He has no claim on me. But I do as the Father has commanded me, so that the world may know that I love the Father. Rise, let us go from here. So Jesus is with us even when he's not, and he's with us by his Spirit for three particular purposes. He is present with us first for our obedience in verses 14 to 21. Verses 14 to 21, He's present with us for our obedience. Jesus has told them that He's leaving. The disciples are troubled that they can't go with Him, presumably because they love Him. So now in verse 15, He tells them how to love Him in His absence. Not with sad despair, but with obedience to His commands. Which begs the question, what are His commands? Well, in context, they include serving one another to the point of foot washing, chapter 13, verses 14 to 17. Includes loving each other, as he told them to, in John 13, 34 to 35. Includes believing in God and Jesus, as he commanded them to, in chapter 14, verse 1. Asking anything in his name, chapter 14, verses 12 to 14. Remaining in him, as a branch remains in the vine, chapter 15, verse 4. And perhaps more remotely even than that, feeding a sheep, as he tells Peter to do in chapter 21 after he's risen from the dead. Christian, this is how Jesus wants you to love him by obeying him. Love for Jesus obeys Jesus. If you love Jesus, then you will serve each other here in this church. You will love each other as Jesus commanded us. You will exercise, as we say in our church covenant, an affectionate care and watchfulness over each other. You trust Jesus' word as more reliable than your own word, as more reliable than the word of the world. You act on His word, not on yours. You ask Jesus for things that honor Him and His Father. You keep listening to Him in Scripture. You treat His house as a house of prayer. Obedience. Obedience is Jesus' love language. You know, you spouses or you children, you have ways that you like to be loved, right? I have ways I like to be loved. (laughs) Most of them involve food. (laughs) Jesus' love language is obedience. When you obey him, that's what tells him most clearly you love him. That's how Jesus wants to be loved by you. He can see you raise your hand and worship. He can see you shed a tear. He can see you getting emotional. He can see you listening to Christian music in your home. He can see all those things. But what really tells him you love him is obedience. There are times when I love my wife in a particular way that she knows I don't want to love her, <laughs> right? I'll do something that I know she loves that I'm not crazy about doing, that I don't really feel like doing most of the time. And if I do that thing, she will notice it more often. And she would say, that meant a lot to me. Because I know that you don't like doing that. I know you didn't want to do it at that particular time. Jesus is like that. But how do we obey Him? Where do we get the power for this kind of obedience? We know the precept that we're supposed to obey. It's love. Love for Him. Love for one another. Obedience to His commands. Serving one another. Asking Him anything in His name. Abiding in Him. But how do we... Obey. Where's the power coming from, from this kind of obedience? Well, the connection between verses 15 and 16 is not causal. It's instrumental. If you love me, then you will prove it, not simply by your emotion, but by your obedience. And I will enable your obedience by asking the Father to send you another helper besides me. Namely, the Holy Spirit, who will come in my stead to be present with you and powerful in you to obey when you don't feel like it in your flesh, which is all the time. The word helper is literally one called alongside, to counsel, to enable, to help. It often happens in legal contexts in the first century literature. So Jesus is saying, I will not send my spirit because you are already obeying my commands and deserve to have more of my spirit. That's not the sense. It's, I will send my spirit so that you will obey my commands. This is Jesus making good on God's promise in Exodus, excuse me, in Ezekiel 36, 27. I will put my spirit within you. Why? Because you are already obeying and you deserve my spirit as a reward? No. I will put my spirit within you and, bracket, thereby cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. That's how you're going to obey. I will put my spirit in your heart and my spirit will move you, motivate you, empower you, make you want to obey out of love for Jesus. Again, this is how Christianity is different than any other religion in the world. You don't get that from Islam or Buddhism or paganism. You only get the Spirit of God from the Son of God. Promised by God the Father. Now look there at what Jesus asks the Father for on our behalf. The Helper. The best gift Jesus can ask the Father to give you is not to pay off your mortgage. (laughs) It's the Holy Spirit. Jesus then is modeling for them in verse 16 the kind of prayer He wants them to pray in verse 14. If that's what He's asking, then that's the kind of thing we should be asking too. As believers, we already have the Spirit, because, but we should be asking for Him in greater measure, both individually and together as a local church. All this addresses the disciples' concern that they can't follow Jesus where Jesus is going just yet. Well, since they can't follow Him, He will send His Spirit to be with them as another helper in His place to minister His presence to them. Commissioned by Jesus to represent Jesus until Jesus returns. That's why Jesus calls the Spirit the Spirit of truth. Because the Spirit represents Jesus as the truth and interprets for us what Jesus means when He calls Himself the truth and what that truth requires of us in response. And notice, too, the Trinitarian theology. God the Son asks God the Father to send God the Spirit So that by the Spirit's power, the Son is obeyed, so the Father is honored. This is all about God. Jesus is making your life, the life of his disciples, all about the glory of the triune God being made manifest in their heart. This is not about me. This is not about you. This is about God being honored in his triune being through you and me in the church. Who are these people who are obeying then? Obedience by what people? We've seen that the Spirit is present for our obedience. Obedience to what precepts? Love, serving one another, asking for the Spirit, Shepherding his flock. Obedience by what power? The power of the Spirit in us. And obedience by what people? The people who obey. Not everyone in the world is going to get this helper. It's only those who know the Spirit because they already know the Son, Christ Jesus. In verse 17, Jesus tells them they already know the Spirit because He's already with them now. And will be in them soon. But the world in opposition to Jesus and his kingdom cannot and will not receive this helper. The world does not see the relevance of this helper. And the world does not see or acknowledge its need of a helper. The world thinks the world is doing just fine without this help. The world thinks it can be moral just fine without this spirit. The world thinks the only spirit it needs is the indomitable, quote-unquote, human spirit. The world doesn't want to be helped because the world wants to believe the lie of sin So it has no use for the spirit of truth, the Holy Spirit. And this is why the world cannot and will not receive the spirit. This is why Paul says in 1 Corinthians 2.14, The natural or carnal man does not receive the things of the spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him. The natural man thinks this stuff is stupid. Sees no relevance, no meaning, no significance. The things of the Spirit of God are foolishness to him and he is not able to understand because they are discerned spiritually with a capital S. By the Spirit of God indwelling the people of God to make sense of the Word of God. You cannot receive God's Spirit then unless you see your need of God's Spirit and understand His role. And that means you have to quit agreeing with the world and what it says about what it means to be good. You cannot understand your need of the Spirit or His role if you are more committed to the lie of sin than to the truth of holiness. And that spiritual sight, that insight, only comes from and through Jesus. And Jesus tells them when, in verses 18-18, To 20, I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you yet a little while. That's when. Yet a little while and the world will no longer see me, but you will see me. That's when. Because I live, you also will live in that day. That's when. You will know that I am in the Father and you are in me and I am in you. When is a little while? When is that day? Well, he's apparently talking about Jesus' post-resurrection appearances to the disciples in John 20, verse 22. When he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. That's when. That makes sense here. Since Jesus connects their seeing him again with their living anew because of his resurrection. That's when. He says here, Because I live, you also will live. So Christians live anew through the resurrection of Jesus from the dead by faith in that, by union with Christ in his resurrection. But if so, then the when of this presence for obedience is when Jesus breathes on them to give them the Spirit in chapter 20, verse 22. That's the indicator of the new creation from Genesis 2, 7. Remember there, God breathed into Adam the breath of life. Adam sinned as our representative head and he forfeited not only for himself but for us his physical life and the indwelling of God's spirit that he enjoyed and we would have enjoyed with him had he obeyed. Jesus, as the second Adam, obeyed God where we disobeyed God. He died as the penalty for our disobedience to his law and our rebellion against his love. Jesus rose from the dead. He breathed his resurrection life onto his first disciples in his spirit, giving them his personal spirit to motivate and empower their obedience. And when we believe the gospel of Jesus, as preached by the apostles of Jesus, we get that same Spirit today. The indwelling person of God's Spirit is the life of God in the soul of man that enables all of Christ's people and only Christ's people to obey His Word. This is why we get frustrated in our Christian life. Because we don't realize. We can't live the Christian life. Apart from the life of Christ. Breathed in us by his spirit. And renewed in us. And asked afresh from us. George Smeaton said this. He's an 1800 Scottish Puritan. Banner of Truth has published his book. Called the Doctrine of the Holy Spirit. This is what he said. The forfeited presence of the Spirit is restored, forfeited by Adam, is restored by Christ's mediatorship and obedience to God's law in precept and penalty. It may be affirmed on the ground of the analogy between the two Adams, first Adam and Christ, that Christ would not have been the medium of giving the Spirit if the first man had not possessed the Spirit, Adam. The Spirit departed from the human family when Adam gave ear to the tempter's seducing words, and the restoration by the second man, Jesus, the second Adam, implies the possession of the Spirit by the first Adam. Adam gave up. The filling of the Spirit in his sin. And Jesus restores the filling of the Spirit to us in his obedience, death, and resurrection. No one, in fact, Smeaton goes on to say, can read the action of Christ on the first evening after his resurrection, John 20, 22. He breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Spirit. No one, in fact, can read that action of Christ on the first evening after his resurrection and consider the symbolic breathing on the disciples and the words which fell from him in conveying a new gift of the Spirit without an impression that these two acts, Adam's forfeiture of the Spirit and Jesus' breathing of the Spirit, these two acts were counterparts. The one, the original gift, and the other, the restoration of what was lost. That Christian and nothing less is what Jesus has restored to you by giving you His Spirit. He has made you a better man than Adam because you have the Spirit that Adam lost, the Holy Spirit. As power for obedience, lost in Adam, restored in Christ. The Spirit, then, is how we obey in Christ. The Spirit is the reason we want to obey and our way of knowing how to obey since we were deprived of that ability by Adam's disobedience and forfeiture of the Spirit. So then why do we obey? What's the purpose of our obedience? One well, verse 21, Jesus returns to obedience as proof of love, the one who has my commands and keeps them. This is the one who loves me. The one who loves him is not the one who shows most sorrow at his departure from them. The one who loves him is the one who trusts he must go away in order to prepare a place for them and to have an indwelling relationship with them by the outpouring of his spirit that he could not otherwise have if he did not go away. The one who loves me will be loved by my father and I will love him and reveal myself to him. We obey then from love for Christ for the enjoyment of God's fatherly pleasure and approving love and for deepening communion with Christ himself. That's why we obey. Isn't that why your children obey you? (laughs) Kind of because they don't want to get in trouble but because they want to be on your good side because they want your Fatherly pleasure in them. They don't want to be on your bad side. They don't want to be on the outs. So when Jesus says, the one who loves me will be loved by my Father, it's the same point as when he said earlier, no one can come to the Father except through me. Loving Jesus means, above all, seeing Jesus to be the Father's own revelation of himself Relying on Jesus as God's provision for man's sin and finding God's righteousness for our salvation in Jesus. That is the way to be loved by God in Christ. And so you can see the only merit here belongs to Jesus for his obedience. And his obedience purchases and procures the presence of his personal spirit with us and even in us, even in Jesus' physical absence from us. The presence of his spirit is what motivates and empowers Christ's trusting people to obey the truth of his commands, to trust Jesus, love and serve each other as Jesus loved and served us, to ask from Jesus anything for his honor, and to remain in his love by listening to his word, in Scripture, and talking to him in prayer. Jesus then is preparing his disciples to have relationship with him after his departure. That relationship is going to happen through trusting obedience by the power of the Spirit present in them from the inside out. And we will not be orphaned in Jesus' presence because Jesus was effectively orphaned for us on the cross, forsaken by his Father so that we might not be left as orphans but adopted as sons and daughters of God by the merit of Jesus' blood and righteousness. So Jesus has provided for us all that he required of us by his Spirit he has now sent to live in us. We love him then by obeying him through the Spirit Asking Him to empower us, to motivate us, to strengthen us. And as we obey, we see Jesus reveal Himself to us more by illuminating His Word to us, which in turn shows us that the presence of Christ's Spirit with us is not only for obedience, but also for communion with us. It leads us to our second point. Christ leaves His Spirit with us, present with us, for communion with Him. Verses 22 to 26. And this is an exclusive communion. It's an exclusive communion. Peter was confused about Jesus' departure by death earlier in this same conversation. Thomas was confused about the way to follow Jesus when he already knew Jesus as the way. Philip was confused about how to see the Father when Jesus was standing right in front of them. And now Jude is confused about why Jesus is only going to reveal himself to his obedient people and not to the whole world. I don't get it. Why just us? Wouldn't it serve you better to reveal yourself to the whole world, not just us? His question here in verse 22 may be like Judas's brother's question or Jesus' brother's question in chapter 7 verse 4. If you are the Son of God then why not reveal yourself to the whole world to all people without exception? I mean, don't we still ask that same question today? Don't you feel that question from your unbelieving friends and neighbors? Why don't you just do it? Why don't you just come down and reveal himself? And Jude asks it as a what happened question. The question assumes that Jesus has come to be an earthly kind of king, presiding over an earthly kind of kingdom, and Jesus is now changing course somehow from his original plan, as Jude understands it. But an earthly kingdom was never Jesus' mission. He came to die for the sins of his own people in order to rise from the dead, ascend to God's right hand, and from there rule over a spiritual kingdom in the church. But Jesus doesn't seem to answer Jude's question very directly, does he? He just repeats, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word and my father will love him and we will come and make our home with him. In effect, what has happened is the world is rejecting Jesus. And that is according to plan. And Jesus will not reveal himself to those who remain hostile to him. That's not a surprise to Jesus. It is only a surprise to Jude because he and the other disciples still can't grasp that the world is about to flatly reject Jesus by crucifying him. So Jesus doesn't answer Jude's question about the world. He redirects them to how they themselves need to respond to him and to his word. Don't you worry about the world. You tend to my word. You love me by keeping my word. You keep my word by trusting me, believing in me as the one sent by the Father. And you love one another. This communion with Christ through His Spirit is exclusive then, first to the eleven, and then to all who believe their witness about Jesus' resurrection. So the upshot is that not everyone who says that they're spiritual has the spirit of truth. You might have a spirit all right but if you're not trusting and obeying in Jesus then the spirit you have is not the spirit of Christ but all those who do keep Jesus word and who have the spirit of truth have a family kind of communion with both God the father and God the son look there in verse 23 we father and son facilitated by the spirit will make our home with whoever loves Jesus and keeps His word. That word for home, we will make our home with Him. It's the same word for rooms in chapter 14 too. In my Father's house are many rooms. We will come and make our household room with Him. So the room made in our hearts by the Holy Spirit for the Father and the Son is kind of like a heaven on earth until Jesus is done preparing our eternal place. We, Father and Son, will make our dwelling with whoever loves Jesus by keeping His commandments with the power of the Helper. So Christian, the Spirit makes your heart the temple, tabernacle, home of the triune God. You are Family to the Trinity. You're in. God makes Himself at home with you, in you. That's as in as it gets. Your heart, Christian, is the antechamber. To heaven. And the Father himself has authorized it all in verse 24. None of this is true of the one who does not keep Jesus' word. Whoever does not love me does not keep my words. Therefore, God will not make his home with them. But for those who do, their household, family, communion with the triune God in their hearts is actually the message that the Father has sent to be relayed by the Son to us. So this is not just Jesus kind of riffing on his own. Jesus is saying only what he has already heard his father say to him for our benefit. This exclusive familial communion is by the father's authority. The spirit of God dwells in your heart by the authority and command of God. The Spirit belongs in you. There's nothing wrong with Him being there. He deserves to be there. Jesus didn't have to twist the Father's arm to make your communion with Him a reality. This was the Father's idea. Jesus is only doing He is only making real this communion because the Father told him to do it for you. It's why the Father sent the Son. So friend, if you think hard thoughts of God the Father, like he's not merciful or compassionate or forgiving, or as if he's always angry and unwilling to reconcile with you, That is unfair to God the Father. You're disparaging Him. That's not who He is. That's not who He's presented Himself to be. That's not why He sent Jesus. The Father sent the Son to be in His own divinity and humanity the Word of God, the message about God's love for the world in its need to be forgiven by God and reconciled by God. So don't think hard thoughts about God the Father. He's the one who sent the Son. And the Father sent the Son, among other reasons, so the Son could send the Spirit to teach and remind us of all that Jesus taught us about God and His expectations of us and His hopes for us, His plans for us, and all Jesus means for us. That's what the Helper does in verse 26. The Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, He will teach you, all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. So the Holy Spirit is going to be the one who will teach the apostles all things and remind them of everything Jesus taught them while he was on the earth so that they can write scripture accurately. The sending of the Spirit is first special to the apostles and then democratized, as it were, to all of God's trusting people in Christ. And the focus of the Spirit's teaching ministry is not to say a bunch of new stuff. but rather to remind us of all the stuff Jesus has already said to us and what that stuff means for us. The Spirit's work is to illumine for us, to shed light on and to remind us of everything Jesus said about how He fulfills Scripture and how He fills our hearts with His Spirit. What Jesus is saying here about the Spirit is different from how many people think of their experience of the Spirit today. And it's sometimes hard to talk about because we are experiential people. We like to talk about our experiences. And we don't want anybody to take our experiences away from us. And so we latch on to these feelings or impressions or experiences. And when we like those spiritual experiences or feelings or impressions, we want to believe that they are directly from God and special to us. And that they prove something about us and our relationship to God. And that's understandable. But we need to listen to Jesus here. Being a spiritual person doesn't just mean that you like having those feelings or getting those impressions. The spirit of truth is active today. He does lead us. He does teach us. But how does he do that? He does that by giving us memory and understanding of Jesus' word. The Father will send the Spirit in Jesus' name as Jesus' emissary to speak Jesus' word which Jesus has already spoken in Scripture. The focus of the Spirit's ministry then is the truth about who Jesus is and what Jesus did as recorded in Scripture. And the Spirit teaches us Jesus' word, not simply to make us feel a certain way or to give us a certain experience, but to empower us to obey the word of Christ that the Spirit has brought to mind and taught us to understand. Because remember, what's Jesus' love language? Obedience. Not sentiment. Obedience. And that's why He gives you the Spirit to enable your obedience to show your love to Jesus. So the Spirit fills our minds with true and right thoughts about Scripture and about Jesus and about how to obey Jesus' word in Scripture. That is what it means for the Spirit to be the Spirit of truth. He teaches us what it means for Jesus to be the way and the truth, and the life. So the ministry of the Spirit, in other words, is not self-glorifying. The Spirit is not there to attract attention to Himself or to you. The ministry of the Spirit is Christ-glorifying because the Spirit is teaching and strengthening you to love Jesus by obeying Jesus. So what we seek in our true experience of the Spirit of truth is not the Spirit for the Spirit's sake or the Spirit for our feelings' sake, but the Spirit for Christ's sake. That is a real way to experience from the Spirit the kind of peace that Jesus leaves us with. And that leads us to our last point this morning, presence for peace. And this is a gifted peace. It's given to us freely. Jesus leaves us with His peace, as an unmerited, undeserved, unearned, parting gift. He simply gifts it. He bequeaths it to us as if he's leaving it to us in his will right before he dies. And this peace is Christ's peace, he says. What's that mean? Well, it's his own well-being of heart and mind and relationship with his Father. It's also the absence of any and all conflict or hostility with God. Yet it also includes tranquility of mind amid the world's hostility against us as Jesus' followers. It's holistic, and if it is Christ's peace, the peace he himself enjoys, then it is both secure and it is effectual. It works. Nothing in this world can ruin what Jesus calls my peace, and he gives that peace to you and to me as believers in Christ. We can forfeit it by not realizing how enduring and unassailable it is. We can not realize that we have it when we do. But this peace is not vulnerable to political or cultural shifts. It's not subject to social changes or family feuds, it is transcendent. Nor does Jesus give this peace like a Jewish well-wisher who would say shalom to another well-meaning Jew. That's ineffectual. That's just a wish. Shalom. Peace. Peace, bro. Peace out, homie. That's just a wish. That doesn't do anything. It expresses, you know, kind of a, I, I hope you're doing okay. Okay. But Jesus is leaving us more than just that. What's more, Jesus says, Not as the world gives, do I give to you. How does the world attempt to give or offer you peace? Well, it promises without delivering, right? The world is full of promises of peace. Here's peace, here's peace. Here's how you can have peace of mind. They sell it. It's called insurance. world promises peace, absence of anxiety in money, investments, status, pleasure, power, ease, comfort. And yet the world always fails to deliver, to deliver on that promise of peace, even when it does give us money and status and pleasure and power and comfort and ease. You can have all those things without having the peace of Christ. We get those things, and we soon find that even when we have them, peace eludes us. The world promises that if we just change jobs, or change locations, or change spouses, or change genders, or even change churches, we'll find peace. But our circumstances don't deliver the kind of peace that Jesus can give. Jesus' peace is not mercurial or dependent on human circumstances. It's not up and down like a thermometer. It's effectual and it is eternal, built on God's sovereign and immutable promises. And that is why it's unassailable. There's no need to be troubled at heart or afraid of what the world will say or do to us for our loyalty to Jesus. That's what he's saying there. Don't let your heart be troubled. This is gospel peace, peace of the cross, peace of conscience, peace with God, peace of mind, peace with one another, and peace under the presence of, and pressure of persecution for saying no to ungodliness and worldly loss. Peace about what will happen to us when we die. That is the only peace that will deliver you from chickening out and proving yourself to be a coward when it comes time to declare your loyalty to Jesus under fire. This is the peace that enables you to confront persecution with a smile. This is the peace. This alone that enables you to die well. And it only comes from trusting that Jesus died for us in order to conquer death for us by rising from the dead himself to be the firstborn of all those who will participate with him in the new creation to come by faith in his person and cross work. Courage for the gospel in the face of persecution comes from the kind of peace in your heart that is ready to die. And this peace is joyful. It is not without joy. If this is the peace we enjoy from Jesus, then we should rejoice that Jesus is going to the Father to enjoy the Father's presence Himself. After all, the Father is greater than the Son, not greater in divine essence or glory, but greater in function. That's why the image of the Godhead is revealed to us in Father-Son language and imagery. The Father plans, the Son accomplishes. The Father is greater. The Father commands, the Son obeys. The Father is greater. The Father sends, the Son goes. The Father is greater. The Father radiates, the Son reflects. The father is greater. That's why the relationship is father-son, not friend-friend or brother-brother or partner-partner. Jesus wants to go back to that functional relationship and glory that he had with his father before he came to earth. And he wants his disciples to want that for him, even though it means his physical absence from them. Hey, hey, Jude, Jude. You should, be, you should be rejoicing. You should be hugging me. You should be laughing with me. I'm going back. And I'm going to send my spirit. You're not going to regret this and neither am I. Perk up. As he has already said, he will more than make up for his physical absence for them by his spirit's presence in them. And all this teaching about what, what awaits Jesus in the next few days should make them all the more confident in Him and in the peace that He's giving them. This is a confident peace. Now I have told you beforehand so that when it comes about, you might believe. This is just what He had told them before about His betrayal and suffering in 1319. His foreknowledge, His knowledge of what's going to happen in the future, is what He wants them to recognize as uniquely divine in Himself. Now why foreknowledge? Why that divine attribute and ability? Why not some other display of love or power or mercy to prove to them that he really is God? Why knowledge of the future? It's because that's what his father uses to distinguish himself from the false gods, according to Isaiah 46, 9 and 10. When God wants to distinguish himself as the only God, his go-to attribute is foreknowledge, not love, not mercy, not compassion, not gentleness, and certainly not ignorance of the future. It's foreknowledge. Isaiah 46, 9 through 10. I am God. This is how God preaches. Just sort of sermon over the weekend. What does God preach? When he preaches, he preaches himself. And what's one of his favorite attributes of himself to preach? His foreknowledge. He loves giving sermons on foreknowledge. as unique to him. I am God, and there is no other. I am God, and there's none like me. What would it be if there were one like you, God? There is none like me declaring the end from the beginning. And from ancient times, things not yet done, saying, My counsel shall stand, and I will accomplish all my purpose. Why does he know the future? Because he has purposed it. That's why. No other God can say that. And therefore, no other God is worthy of the name. No other God can compete with him or act like they can stand beside him. And therefore, no other God is worthy of your trust, Christian. Because no other God knows what's coming. Because no other God planned what's coming. And so, once the 11 see that his suffering happens just as Jesus told them that it would and that his spirit will come just as he promised, then, then they will believe. (laughs) It happened just like Jesus told them it was going to happen. He really did die on the cross, he really did rise on the third day. And lo and behold, the scriptures actually told us that he would. And their peace will be complete with confidence. And Jesus concludes with verses 30 and 31. The ruler of this world is coming as if to defeat the mission of the second Adam once for all. The adversary is coming to thwart the second Adam from doing what's necessary to secure for us the advocate. But the adversary finds no weakness in the second Adam. Satan finds zero chink in Jesus' armor. No sinful appetite to which he can appeal in Jesus' heart. No weakness of character to exploit. Satan has nothing on Jesus because he has nothing in Jesus. Nothing to accuse him of and nothing in Jesus to exploit to get him to sin. Jesus is confident he is going to win, and therefore the disciples can enjoy undisturbed, confident peace even through the ordeal of watching Jesus go to the cross. He wants them to be confident even through that. He doesn't want their tears, he doesn't want their despair, he doesn't want their feeling sorry for him. Jesus does not feel sorry for himself, he is confident. And therefore, Jesus can and Jesus will model for you and me on the cross the obedience, communion, and peace under pressure that he is promising to provide for his disciples. He did that. He will obey the Father all the way to the death, an excruciating death, And in doing so, will endure the alienation that we deserve for our disobedience. He will endure the lack of communion with God that Adam drew down for us, that Adam forfeited on our behalf. He will, by that obedience, retain the Father's pleasure and remain in the Father's communion, even though experiencing the pain and curse of all of our disobedience. He will model the peace under pressure and courage under condemnation that he is commanding for us and making available to us. He will model this uninterrupted obedience, communion, and peace so that the world will know that Jesus is the one who loves the Father with the perfect love of perfect obedience. He is the one who has the Spirit without measure and so obeys perfectly and enjoys undisturbed perfect communion and undisturbed peace under pressure. And therefore, he is the one who gives the Spirit's presence liberally to whomever he will and to only those whom he will. He is the one who has obeyed the Father in every way we have disobeyed he is the one who has secured and restored peace for all those who have disturbed the peace by the violence of his death. And he is now ready to accomplish his mission, which he indicates by saying, Arise, let us go from here. It's time to act. The situation is changing. He's ready. He takes the initiative to obey and he leads his disciples to the, their front row seats to witness the drama of his own sacrificial obedience for them and for us. And because Jesus obeyed so perfectly in his life and death, the Father raised him from the dead to give him glory and to give him the privilege of sending out the Spirit into our hearts so that we could have his presence with us for obedience and for communion and for peace. Do you know him, friend? You know him. You must. You should. And praise Jesus, you can. Let's pray. Oh Lord Christ, we confess that we are not sensible as we should be of your Spirit's presence with us and the privilege that it is the power that you have given us to obey and the indwelling of your personal Holy Spirit the communion that he has given to us with the Father and the Son or the peace that he has secured for us even amid the pressure of persecution. We have not praised Jesus adequately for securing all these things by his own obedience which restored our communion and our peace even though he was forsaken on the cross for us and he was done violence so that we might be at peace. So Lord, teach us these things to apply these things to receive them as good gifts from your hand, the best gifts that you could give And enable us by your Spirit to obey. Teach us by your Spirit to enjoy communion with you in prayer and in your word as interpreted by your Spirit who breathed it out. And give us this peace, not as the world gives, but give us Christ's peace. That we might live well without anxiety that we might die well. For Jesus' sake, amen.